This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. This last week I was, um, I was on a phone call with a uh, friend of mine who is a Sovereign Grace pastor, and we were talking, and I was talking about another pastor who was not on the phone call. I was talking behind his back. And uh, I was describing this guy to the guy I was on the phone. He's the other guy, the third party, is a mutual friend of ours. And uh, I was describing this guy, and I was saying how um, I disagree with him on some things, not core doctrinal things, but just have a different, I have a different philosophy of ministry in some areas than this other guy that I was talking about, and uh, specifically his philosophy of leadership and some things like that, and I have uh, expressed those things he's expressing to me, and I talked to him about dialoguing with this guy about differences, and I said, the amazing thing is, is that when he tells me of a different point of view that he has than me, he does it in such a gracious way that I never question whether our relationship is, 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 is questionable. So in other words, he's able to disagree with a secondary issue. He's able to disagree with me on a concept and yet make me feel as close to him as a friend as I ever have. He's able to disagree without being disagreeable. He's able to know what, 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 what is really central and what's a secondary thing and what are we committed to together that's not going to affect our relationship if we have a difference over it. And uh, so I was telling him I really appreciate that about the guy, and this is what the guy on the phone said to me. He said, yeah, he's really mature. I've had the same experience where I've had a difference of opinion with him, and yet it did not affect our relationship at all. And when he said that, it stood out to me. He's really mature. I was thinking, that's not a phrase that I use or think about that much about people. Spiritual maturity. He's really mature. Why? Well, in this case, he's humble and had enough character that he is able to have a different point of view with someone without ruining a relationship. He's able to uh, have iron sharpen iron and help one another grow. And so that's a mature way to handle a difference of opinion on a secondary matter. He's mature. And I thought, wow, what, what is maturity? I began to think about that when he said that. And I thought, well, what really is a mature Christian? I've never in my life heard a sermon uh, about spiritual maturity. I'm going to deliver one today, but I've never heard one before on the subject of spiritual maturity. Because we don't talk about maturity a lot like that. We tend to say about a young person that's wise, oh, she's mature beyond her years. Or we use the word maturity to speak of an older person. It's a respectful way of saying really old dude. Uh, like crotchety old man, let's just call him mature. Uh, so it's a way that we talk of people who are seasoned in life and years and experience. But do we think much about spiritual maturity? What is a spiritually mature person? Is it, is it a person who knows the Bible, knows a lot of Bible verses? Does that make one mature? Uh, is it someone that... Um, Is it someone that just really serves other people a lot? Is it someone that evangelizes and tells everybody about Jesus? Is that a really mature... What is a mature person? When my friend said this on the phone, I totally agreed with him. Yes, the guy we're talking about is mature. I get yes, but where do I get that in the Bible? 
What does the Bible say about maturity? And in the passage we're going to look at today, Paul describes maturity, and he describes it in unusual ways. He says that maturity is defined by how you think about the Christian life. Maturity, first of all, starts with our thinking. And maturity is thinking about what is the goal of our Christian life and how we are pursuing that goal. And so the passage we're going to look at today, look for the word mature, and, uh, and it, because it, it's, it's connected to everything that he's going to say. In Philippians 3, verses 12 through 21, and let's see what we learn about what it means to be a mature believer. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have taken hold of us and that you hold us in the grip of your hand as believers and that nothing or no one can snatch us out of your hand. What a comfort that is. And Lord, we pray that resting, resting in the truth of your grace to us today, we might understand this passage and what you call us to. Lord, show us what it means to press on. Show us what it means to pursue you. Show us what it means to think long-term. Lord, show us what it means to, to be mature. And Lord, more than, more than that, would you make us a people who are mature, who reflect the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in our lives, not only in our understanding, not only in our doctrine, but in our lifestyle, in our practice. Conform us to your image, Lord, and I pray by your Spirit you would speak to us through this passage and you'd give us grace to apply what you say to each of us. Lord, you know each of us individually. Now we listen to you and ask you to speak to us individually and conform us to your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I was saying, Paul shows in this passage, he mentions maturity and he, he talks about maturity as a way of thinking. Look at verse 15. He says, let those of us who are mature think in this way. So he lays out some stuff, and he says, if you're mature, this is how you'll think. The way I just described is how you'll think. And then he goes on to say, imitate me. 
So be mature as well, and then he's going to tell us how to imitate him. So while the main point of the passage uh, is not how to be mature, the main point of the passage is pursuing Jesus, we'll see. But if we think rightly about the goal of our Christian life, and if we pursue the person who is the goal of our Christian life, we will get maturity along the way. So to gain maturity, we don't aim at maturity. We aim at Christ, and we get maturity kind of thrown in. But I want to look at this passage and see what he says, because he says several things that I think help give us a grid to define what does maturity look like, at least at some level. What does it look like in a Christian life? And how can we all seek to be mature? I mean, we all want to be spiritual adults, right? We all want to grow up and we all want to mature. We don't want to be children in our thinking as believers. We don't want to be adolescents. We want to mature into adulthood. And so let's see what Paul says a mature person is. Number one, I've got five things we learned from this passage I want to share with you. So if you're taking notes, five things. The first one is maturity is knowing you need to grow. A mature person knows that he or she needs to grow. Maturity is knowing you need to grow. That's how Paul starts the passage, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this. So he starts off with a statement of, I haven't obtained something. I haven't arrived. I am not already perfect. So I'm not, I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect. I press on, which means I, I haven't completed my task. I press on to make it my own. Just look at verse uh, 13. Uh, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Now, we'll talk about what he's saying there. But he's saying, I don't consider myself having completed the task, having accomplished the goal. I'm not perfect. I'm moving on. I haven't accomplished what I'm wanting to accomplish. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal. By nature, he's saying, I haven't reached the goal. I haven't arrived. I haven't accomplished what I'm supposed to accomplish. I am not who I am ultimately supposed to be. He's been talking about the resurrection. He's saying there is a gap between me today and me resurrected in a glorified body. And that gap between point A right here and point B, that, that, that gap represents areas of progress. It means I need to grow, is what Paul is saying. I need to grow. Maturity is knowing that you need to grow. Now, what is it that he hasn't obtained? He's talking about this thing. I haven't obtained this. I haven't reached the goal. What, what, what is it that he hasn't obtained? Well, the previous verses that Bob covered last week kind of describe what his pers- ultimate pursuit is. In verse 10, he describes his ultimate pursuit, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and maybe share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what he's saying is that my goal, I, I, I no longer am resting on my own righteousness, I'm resting on the righteousness I've received, declared to me from Jesus, and, and now I make it my aim to know, I want to know Jesus I want to experience his power. I want to share in his sufferings. And I, and I want to one day experience, I'm longing for the day that I will experience, however I get there, whatever it takes to get me there, how I will experience resurrection from the dead, a glorified body, when I will know Jesus intimately and personally and, and perfectly for all eternity. So that's what I'm aiming for. 
And, and in, in many ways, that's what he's talking about here. His, his goal, what he is pressing on to, is, is this future resurrection of the dead, uh, which will be a new life, which will be sin-free, which will be problem-free. But I haven't obtained that. In other words, he's saying, I'm not in heaven yet. I'm not in heaven yet. I still sin. I haven't obtained it. I'm not with Christ face to face. I still sin. I still suffer. I don't know Jesus fully. I know him, but I don't know him fully. I haven't experienced the resurrection power fully. I have the power of the Holy Spirit, but not fully like I will on that day. I have not arrived is what he is saying. There's a gap between my today and that day. And so this reflects a humility, a patience. Paul is soberly assessing himself. This has got to be encouraging to the church because you would, uh, the Philippians, you would look at Paul and say, man, this guy's a hero. Who is like him? He's been, he, he, he's, he's, uh, been stoned and left for dead and came, rose up and came back to life. He's been beaten. He's been imprisoned. He's in prison now face, facing execution perhaps. I mean, this guy is an amazing follower of Jesus who's laid his whole life on the line, and yet he says, I haven't arrived. I have a way to go. I'm not perfect. It's interesting. The word translated perfect, I'm not already perfect in verse 12. In verse 15, the same word is translated differently. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature, it's the same word. Let those of us who are mature. And that's, that's, if you have an ESV study Bible with you, it makes a great comment. It, 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 this is a quote. It says, uh, because the word mature or perfect is used in both instances, it says, if you really are mature, you realize that you're not yet mature. That's what he's saying. I haven't reached it. And if you're mature, you'll think this way. If you're mature, you'll realize you're not really mature. You have a ways to go. That's the essence of maturity is that I realize I need to grow. This is really helpful because we might look at Paul and say, man, I could never do what he did. I could never suffer like he did. I could never be as bold for my faith as he is. I could never write the things he wrote. But you know what? I can do this. I can say I haven't arrived I can really believe that I'm not there. I can honestly in my heart see that I'm on a journey and there's a distance yet to go. I can do that. I can do that. And that's what maturity is. Maturity is knowing. He said, think this way. If you want to be mature, think this way. I haven't arrived. That's the start to being mature. It's a sober, realistic assessment. And so every Christian in the room is a candidate for maturity. What we're going to find out in this passage, maturity isn't a status. It's not like, and I don't know uh, the different colors of the belt, or maybe I would have, should have found that out. Maybe I will for the second service and rank them. But it's not like getting a new belt in martial arts. It's not like, well, the really mature person, and again, I don't know the rank, but a brown belt is above a whatever belt. Black belt's up there. I know that's a top deal. So it's, like, it's not like, well, he's a black belt Christian. He's, re- he's at this rank. And he's going to maintain this rank. Maturity is not some ranking system. Maturity is much more about how you're thinking. And he says, if you're mature, think like I think, which means you're not home yet. Be real. Be humble. Realize you have a ways to go. Now, he's not just being down on himself. Oh, man, I've got so far to go. He's not, it's not some kind of attitude like that. It's not obligatory. Well, he's not just saying, well, nobody's perfect like an excuse for blowing it or offending someone. Well, nobody's perfect. What do you expect? 
which puts it all on them instead of on me, right? So he's, he's not saying that. He's not hopeless about growth. He's not saying, well, I'll never, I haven't obtained it, and I suppose I never will, so I'll give up. He says just the opposite. He, he's not like extremely introspective. Like here I'm sitting in this jail just looking inward 24-7 and thinking about the fact that I'm not perfect. I haven't obtained it. That's all I think about is the gap, how far I am from being like Jesus. That's, it's not more, actually, what he's going to describe here is maturity is excessively extrospective. It's looking outward. It's not looking inward. Now, there's, it's, ne- it's necessary to look inward to some degree. But the primary focal point of the Christian life is not inward. He doesn't say, I press on to know my heart. That's not what he says. I'm, I'm eking out at the to the finish line of perfect self-assessment. That's not what he says. He's looking a different direction. So he is self-aware. We are to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. But, but maturity isn't extreme introspection at all. It's just truthful assessment. It just realizes, I've not arrived. I've not arrived. I have a ways to go. So the mature believer as he describes here, who thinks this way, the mature believer is not shocked when someone agrees with that assessment about them. The true believer is not astounded when someone points out a weakness, a failure, a sin in their life. Because a mature believer understands this to be the case. So if the mature believer is thinking like Paul says, I haven't hit the finish line, I haven't arrived, I've got a ways to go, I'm in process, I'm not perfect. If someone agrees with that assessment about us, and we're mature, like, whoa, well, you got your own stuff. Who are you to tell me? That's immature. That's immature. Who are you? Who do they think they're telling me? Well, they're just telling me about the truth of who I am. That's what they're telling me. So we're not shocked. A mature person is not shocked that they have weaknesses in their lives, that they have sins in their lives, that there are certain areas where we haven't made all the progress God calls us to make, that we still sin. Maturity embraces reality and seeks to repent and grow in specific ways. Maturity isn't plateauing in godliness. It's not reaching the third degree of the black belt and just plateauing. That's just kind of as far as I went. How far did you go? That's as far as I went. I just kind of plateaued there. No, because he's going to talk about pressing on. If I know I need to grow and there's a call to press on, there's going to be a movement forward. So he is saying to be mature knows you've got a ways to go and you're not leveling off. You're not stopping. Maturity doesn't act like I've obtained the goal because he says, I, I have, I have, I, I, not that I've already obtained this. I press on. Why? Because I've not obtained it. Verse 13, I do not consider that I've made it my own. What? This, this grasping of Christ eternally, knowing him, and knowing him perfectly, experiencing resurrection power. I, I've not experienced that fully. I press on, verse 14, so I'm moving forward because I'm not there. So maturity means we don't level off. Maturity is not acting like I have obtained the goal. It's not acting like... Uh, I've arrived. Maturity is not self-satisfied. It's not self-sufficient, but it realizes that it needs to grow and is aggressively seeking Christ to grow. So number one, maturity is knowing that you need to grow, but it's not just knowing that we need to grow. It's then 
pursuing Christ. Number two, maturity is pursuing Jesus above all else. So Paul realizes he hasn't arrived, but his progress is not his focus. His focus is on Jesus and pursuing him. So he mentions there's a gap between him and perfection. I'm not perfect. He's certainly aware of that. Certainly convicted of sin in his life. Certainly clear on that point. But he's not pressing on on that point. He's pressing on to make it my own, to know Jesus, because Christ has made me his own. I don't have perfect knowledge of Jesus. I don't have perfect fellowship with him, but I am pursuing this because he has made me his own. I'm pressing on to him because he's made me his own. That is a great, glorious statement. Why do I press on so that I can be right with God? Why do I press on to impress God? Why do I press on to be approved by God? No, I press on because he's already made me his own. Why am I pressing on to Jesus? Because he holds me. Because he has showered forgiveness on me. Because he has had favor on me. I'm not pressing on to earn favor. I'm pressing on because he's already made me his own. He's already made me his own. And that, that provokes a desire to grow. See, that it's, it's, uh, it, we don't think of it that way. We, don't think, we think, well, oh man, if I really believed that, I'd just quit. No, if we really believed that, we'd press on. If we really believed that he held us, that we're saved by grace, it produces in us a desire to grow. It produces a desire to be like the one who has held us, to be like the one who gave his life for us. One person I read said, you wouldn't think that at the start, when the starter's pistol goes off, if the runner knows he'll complete and win the race, you'd think that maybe he wouldn't, exert that much effort, but it's just the opposite. We know we'll make it to the end. We know no one can snatch us from his hand. We know we will be in eternity with him, and so we press on. That's what Paul says. He takes comfort in the fact that Jesus has held on to him. He made me his own. When you read the letters of Paul, you find out he never gets far from that moment that God made him his own. Paul was on the way to persecute Christians, and God appeared to him, and interrupt, more than interrupted his life, blinded him, spoke to him, converted him. He, he disrupted everything about his life. He completely turned around the direction of his life and drew him to Jesus, drew him to himself, knocked him over, spoke to him, gave him new life, and made Paul a disciple and a follower and even a preacher, a messenger of Jesus. It turned him around so that now everything, Jesus is everything to him. Jesus is life to him. Jesus is the one he wants to pursue and to live for. He's continually pursuing him. He's living in the reality that I was dead and he made me alive. I was in darkness and he turned on the lights. I was opposed to him. He said to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I was opposed to Jesus and he held on to me, loved me and made me his own. And that turns around the entire direction of his life. One author said, Dennis Johnson, in his commentary, he said, this is how he would summarize this verse. Because Christ has seized me, I long to seize him. Because Christ has seized me, this aggressive grace interrupted, intervened, slammed into my world, changed everything for me. And now I'm aggressively desiring to seize him. I long to see him face to face. I long to cross the finish line. And to meet him and to be in his presence and to know the power of the resurrection 
in, in, in all its glory. I long for this. So see, the fact that Jesus laid hold of me, he saved me by grace, does not produce stagnation. It does not produce self-satisfaction. It does not produce, I mean, there's a sense in which it produces, I'm home. I mean, I'm assured of home. I'm assured of my status before Christ. I'm assured that I'm forgiven for eternity. I'm assured that he will welcome me into his presence. So there is a finality to it. There is a certain finality to my status or position before God. But there is also this reality that I want to be more and more like him. I want to invest my life for his glory. I want to, it doesn't produce laziness. I don't want to be lazy and take him for granted. I don't want to presume upon him. I want to love him well. I want to steward everything he's given me. I want to use who I am, the opportunities I have. I want to use the abilities he's given me, the network of relationships he's provided. I want to use whatever he's provided for his glory. I'm pressing on. I'm immensely satisfied in Jesus. He says, content in every situation, but I'm dissatisfied with where I am. I know, I know that I haven't arrived and I want to stretch out and by grace be propelled forward towards him. He goes on to say, brothers, I love that verse 13, we're in this together. Brothers, I don't think I have arrived, is what he says. I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. What does he press on toward? The goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Don't think I've arrived, but I am pressing on. Paul is fond of athletic metaphors in the Bible. Uh, He talks about boxing, wrestling. One of his most common ones is to talk about race. race. Right when he dies, he said, I finished my race. He comes to the end of it. That's how he describes his whole Christian life as a race. So here he's using race imagery. He speaks of a goal, The goal is the finish line. He speaks when he gets to the finish line, there is a prize. He speaks of straining forward like a runner. You can see it. You've seen those images in races where there's a, it's a photo finish and the runner's, you know, leaning forward like this, trying to hit the tape first. So there's this straining, this leaning into the race that he speaks about here. Um, And given the context of what he's been talking about, especially in verse 10 and a few uh, that we read earlier, speaking of the context, it would seem like the finish line is the end of life, his death or the return of Jesus. And the prize is uh, eternal fellowship with Jesus face to face. The prize that we long for is Jesus himself, the resurrection body that we receive so that we commune personally with Jesus for all eternity. The finish line's our death or his return, and the prize is Jesus eternity with him. And so he's saying, that's the race. That's where I am headed. That's what I'm leaning into. What did he say in chapter one? To live is Christ. To die is gain. Why? Because I get the finish line and I get the prize. I finished the race. So he's on a race and he's describing it as a race. And it's not a sprint. Some of us think it's a sprint. Uh, Jesus warns against that. Jesus says the word goes out, and there's certain people that sprint with a burst. He uses this uh, farming analogy. Certain people that look like they're all there, like they're a living plant, but you find out they're not. Weeds choke out the life of the plant. And, and sometimes it's that way. There's a, it appears like someone's on the track running. They make a big burst of energy, but then they, they leave the race. They, they quit. really wasn't in them. 
Jesus really wasn't their target that they were going for. Notice the direction of his life. Notice the direction. I, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. His direction is forward. His direction is forward. Think about that. He's not dwelling on the past. He's forgetting what's in the past. And he's looking towards the finish line. He's looking to Jesus, the prize, at the end of the finish line. So he's not looking in the past. He is moving forward. Now, this doesn't mean you can't have a scrapbook or if you ever look at your old wedding photos, you're not mature because you're thinking about the past. Or, you know, it's not, it's not what he's saying, that you can have no memory. But he's saying, what's the direction? What motivates? What drives? What compels you? It's the finish line that we're moving toward. It's not the past. I was thinking about this. Why would Paul not look? What, what, forgetting what lies behind. What lies behind him? He's speaking autobiographically here. What lies behind Paul that he's not looking at? Well, think about it. What do we know of him? He's told us earlier in the chapter that he previously had a list of religious accomplishments. He's not looking back and trusting self-righteousness. He's not looking back at all that he attained religiously. Matter of fact, he said, that's like garbage. It's like trash to me. It's in the lost column of my life. I'm not dwelling on that. He was self-righteous to the point of persecuting believers. I'm not living in the past. I mean, those, all of those things would articulate regrets for Paul. Paul's not happy about that. I mean, think about what lies in Paul's past. Paul could be out planting churches with Stephen if it hadn't been that before his conversion he killed or at least oversaw the killing of Stephen. You think Paul doesn't have any regrets? How about killing Christians? You think that would produce a little regret in the apostle who's writing the Bible? But he's not living there. I'm forgetting what lies behind me. Or maybe what lies behind him in his Christian life is victories. Now he is in prison, but he has traveled. He's experienced the power of God. He's been up into heaven and had a vision. He has seen people saved, healed, delivered from demonic powers. He's seen people converted. He's seen churches started. Man, this guy lived an adventurous life. But he's saying, I, I'm, not, I'm, not looking, I'm not looking back at my victories. I'm pressing on. Looking back at his regrets could, could stall him, could, could cause him to not make progress, could cause him to forget about grace. Looking at his victories in the past could cause him to just coast and take it easy. But he's not doing either. He's looking ahead. It is impossible to run a race with forward momentum when your eyes are fixed on the past. You've got to look in front. And that's what he says. He's forgetting what happened in the past, and he's pressing on. He's not living with regret of the past that torments and traps him from progress. He's not looking to victories in the past that cause him to rest on his laurels and say, look what I've done. He's pressing ahead. He is going after the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. That's what he's headed for, and let those of us who are mature think this way. So what's maturity? It's not dwelling on the past. It's moving towards the future. Are are you tempted in that way at all? Maybe you're stuck 
in some way today. Maybe you live with regrets. If you live long enough, you'll have some regrets. I do. If you live long enough, you will have some regrets. I wish I had done that differently. Why didn't I do that when I was younger? Why did I? Everybody's going to have regrets. Everybody's going to have regrets, but it will hinder your race to live trapped in your regrets. We must reach out to Jesus who has a hold of us and receive grace. Grace covers your past, Christian. I don't know what you've done or what you haven't done, but I know what Paul did, and it was bad. And he's able to say, I've encountered Jesus to such a degree that he holds on to me, I'm in the grip of his hand, and I'm forgetting that, and I'm moving on. Now, if there's someone you need to get right with or need to ask forgiveness of or make restitution to, that's different. We need to, we need to go do that, take care of that, and then move on. But ultimately, it is grace that must cover our past to move forward in the race. Grace covers us, and grace empowers us to, what does he say? Strain forward to what lies ahead. There are some of us that are not straining forward to what lies ahead because we're not living with memories of regret. We're living with the good old days. As people age, hit their senior years, or even before their senior years, some people coast at the end of the life, just remembering the good old days. Man, the way it used to be back in the church, or back in my previous church, or back when I was younger, the way we used to do things before the blasted internet, or before you people, you young ones today, you don't know what it's like. No, it's, it's not that attitude. Is, uh, here's what, I, or what we accomplished in the past or what we experienced. There can be a sense of just living and relishing the good old days, not just being grateful for what God's done. We're called to be grateful for what God's done. The Psalms remember God's faithfulness to his people. I'm not saying remember. I, I'm saying just not pressing on and experiencing him doing anything good now. I'm saying we're not really pressing on and accomplishing anything in prayer, in service, in love, in witness today. We're just remembering what he used to do. That's remembering and living off what lies behind and not pressing ahead. Maybe we used to be very repentant. Maybe we used to be very sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Maybe we used to have a conscience that listened to the Lord. Maybe we used to have... but. But that's just the good old days we reminisce in now. Paul's saying, no, I'm pressing on from a jail cell. I've been seized by Jesus, and I'm running towards him, eyes looking to the future. That's maturity. That's maturity. That's exactly what he says. After he talks about this pressing forward, that's when he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Why? Because I'm convinced I haven't arrived. I'm convinced God wants to do more in my life. And by his grace, I'm asking him to empower me to press on ahead, is what he's saying. Strain on ahead, eagerly lean into. It is a race. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. I was thinking, it's not just a marathon. I was thinking, but you know, what is an analogy? It's it's really, the Christian life is really like, uh, if you've seen that show, The Amazing Race, that's really what it's like. I mean, I'm not really into that show. I looked up this week. There's been 28 seasons of that show. I lost interest half, half an hour into the first episode I saw. But, but it makes for a good sermon illustration. Some, some people watch 28 seasons, so that's good. But um, I suppose. Um, but the amazing race isn't just a 100-yard dash, and it's not just a marathon run. It's a variety of experiences that keep the racers off kilter. 
And so they're thrown into, typically they're racing through uh, foreign cultures where things, uh, foreign smells, different languages. They're thrown into some city where they cannot relate and they're called, they're called to do something that is strenuous. It could be a physically taxing act. It could be solving a puzzle. They're always running around making hand motions to people that don't understand English. I know that. So they're trying to communicate with people, and it's difficult. It's, it's challenging. Sometimes they have to do some type of a challenge where they have to eat something or build something or put a puzzle together. Or it's just challenging things. And all the while, they're, they're riding in a taxi or they're riding in a helicopter or they're riding on a tandem bike or they're running and they're arguing with their partner the whole time. That's a Christian life. That's it right there. It's, it's a great illustration. This is confusing. I don't know what I'm doing. This is really hard. I'm tired. I'm emotionally drained and I don't really like you right now. Welcome to church. That that the amazing race that is the christian life needing grace all along to keep ours why are we doing this why am i doing this why am i dropped into this place that i cannot relate i don't know what to do i'm really tired why am i doing this oh because the winner gets a million bucks that's why i'm doing this That's why I'm doing this. We're not going for a million bucks. We're going for a finish line and Jesus at the finish line. And so it is a long race, but he's grabbed onto us. He's already taken hold of me. He seized me and now I'm running after him and seizing him. And he's given me partners, brothers. He says it twice in the passage. He's given me brothers and sisters in the race so that we we experience life together. And there's times when one of us is injured and we hold up the other one and carry them. And there's times when one of us needs a pep talk and we speak the word of God and exhort each other, just like in the amazing race. But we're pursuing a target. We're pursuing Jesus above all else. See, maturity isn't how far are you in the race. It's really not, Paul says here. Maturity has to do with your direction. Are you moving towards Jesus? That's the question. Are you think, what's your direction? Are you thinking about the past? Regrets or victories? Or are you pressing on and thinking about the future? That's maturity. It's not have you gone five miles, 10 miles, or 30 miles so much as how are you facing? What's your direction? How are you navigating what's happened in the past as you look to the future? That is maturity. And realizing I'm not there yet. I'm not looking around at the other racers to find out how far they are and am I above them or behind them, below them, whatever it is. Looking to Jesus and pressing on. Jesus has made me his own, and I'm pursuing him. I'm dependent on him. I've not arrived, but I'm trusting and pressing on. So maturity realizes that we need to grow. Maturity pursues Jesus above all else. I've got three more, but they're going to go really fast. Maturity is following the example of the mature. So he says, if you're mature, you'll think this way. I love Paul. He's so patient. If you don't think this way, if you don't think of the Christian life as a long race that we need Christ for, if you don't think of that and you think you've arrived or whatever else, or you're just thinking about the past, that's okay. God will show you. That's what he says. God, God, God's faithful. I don't have to freak out about people who don't think exactly like this. If, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So God will help you. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Maturity is following the example of the mature. Maturity follows the example of the mature. Maturity means I have not arrived, so there are, I need to grow and learn, and God's going to use others in my life to help me grow and learn. That's maturity. Immaturity is I'm isolated. It's all about me. 
I don't want to be known for who I am. I, I, I just want to do my, my thing. I want to be sort of an independent spirit. That's immaturity. Maturity is looking to the example, seeing that God speaks through others, uses others in my life. And that's why Paul tells the Philippians, follow what you've seen in me, and those others who do the same thing, who live according to the example you have in us, keep your eyes on those. Keep your eyes on people that are thinking this way. don't, Don't follow people that think they've arrived. If someone's plateauing and they're not growing, I mean, love them, serve them, help them, but don't follow them. Don't keep your eyes and say, that's what I want to do. No, keep your eyes on people that are moving on in the Lord, recognizing their need, seeing their sin, but primarily seeing Jesus and moving forward. That's what he's talking about here. That's maturity. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So he's not saying the whole church should be Paul clones. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm following the Lord, and as you see the reflection of the Lord shining through me, follow me. Follow me. As you see the Lord working in my life, as you see the truth of Scripture walked out in my life, follow Christ as you see that walked out in my life. So he ultimately points people uh, to Jesus. Earlier in this series, I, I talked about that, how we all need people to help us and to model for us. That's a biblical idea. Being clones is not a biblical idea. Looking exactly the same, dressing exactly the same, using the same buzzwords and lingo. That's not what he's talking about. Being conformed to the image of Christ and having others set an example for me of what that looks like in practical life, that's a good thing. So we all need examples. What does it mean to follow Christ with my time? We're going to be talking about that all fall. What does it mean to follow Christ to be a steward of my time? I'm crazy busy. Is that good? How how does God want to address that? That's what we're doing in our small groups all fall. What does it mean to follow Christ with your money, with your gifts, with your abilities? What does it mean to follow? You're a single adult. What does it mean to pursue a relationship with someone that could could lead towards marriage? What does that look like? How how do I do that? Who Who can show me? Who can be an example of a godly relationship to me? Who can be an example of what it means to... Love my wife as Christ loves the church as a married guy. What, is it, what does it mean to follow Christ in suffering? How, where can I see? Where can I learn? Keep your eyes on people like that that you can learn from that are setting an example. Because a mature person realizes we need the example of mature people before us. How do you do life as a mother with multiple kids under, under school age? What does that look like? And who can help me with that? Where are the example of that? Where's the example of a guy? We're going to learn from a guy who has to travel a lot for his job. How do you honor Christ and balance it all when you're on the road a lot? What does that look like? I mean, very practical ways of discipleship. Paul's saying, keep your eyes on those who are living this way, thinking this way, and learn from them. See, a lot of us don't don't pursue that kind of example. Don't even value that. I, I just want this verse to cultivate a desire and a value for us. When I was in college, I wanted to grow spiritually. Um, I didn't have a Christian father that discipled me, so I wanted to look up to someone who could help me be godly, and I kind of thought that, thought that means I could find an older guy who was godly, and we could just sit down, and he'd just drop nuggets, nuggets of wisdom on me, and I'd just take the nugget and just be like instantly transformed. So there was this man in the church that I knew had a godly reputation. Um, he, he, had a God, he was known 
in the church because of some teaching ministry uh, they did that he and his wife were godly, had a godly marriage. I wasn't married as a college guy. I mean, I could probably learn from this guy. So I basically went up to him and said, hey, would you disciple me? Would you pour into me? Would you mentor? I don't know what word I used. I didn't really know him that well. But would you like, uh, you know, really train me? Just get, give me the nuggets. Give me the Holy Spirit, you know, whiz bang, whatever it takes. Just get, I just want to be godly. I just want to be grown up and mature. I just want stuff happening, you know, pr- pretty idealistic. And so here's what the guy says to me. He says, yeah, um, I'm going to be out doing some uh, calls, uh, you know, like on Thursday night or whatever it is. Why don't you meet me at six? Yeah, yeah, okay. So this guy is a sales. He's in sales. And he just takes me for a ride along to people's houses where he's selling, like, I think it was security equipment or something like that to to their homes. I immediately thought, he must think I'm looking for a job. This guy is, I don't, I'm not a sales, I'm not trying to be a, I I don't, I'm not selling alarm systems. I want to be a godly person, a godly man, all this kind of stuff. And so we're just driving way out in the country uh, where I'm thinking, man, nobody's going to break into these houses. They'll never find them. We're going way out in the country. And he, but the whole way he's dry, asking me questions, sharing about his life, just kind of talking, shooting the breeze. He didn't open the, we're not, we're not doing like Bible study. We're not praying. We're not in the third heaven and praying. And you know, he's just like getting to know me and talking about life. And then we sit down, he's telling me about his job and the opportunities he has. We sit down, I'll actually watch him do a sales call. I'm thinking, this is a waste of my time. I'm a college kid, wants to be a godly man. I'm not going to sell alarm systems. No offense if you do, that's great. But that's just not what I felt like I was called to do. And I remember walking away, and I said, hey, thanks a lot. I never followed up, never met with the guy again. And man, did I miss out. Here was a brilliant guy. He said, this kid needs an example of life. This guy, did, it's nothing wrong sitting with your Bible open in a coffee shop and just giving people Bible verses. That's fine. This guy needs someone to show him what's a, what's a job like, what's life like, how do I process, how do I follow Jesus in a job, how do I relate to people that way. And discipleship might be us driving a long period of time in the country and getting to know one another first. I've often wondered if the guy was just testing me. I tried to look him up on the internet yesterday. I thought I'm going to contact him, but I, can't, I couldn't find him. He's probably really, really old by now. Maybe may not even be living, but I thought this guy, he may have been testing me. Oh, you want to be a disciple? You want to follow Jesus? You want to be full of the Spirit? Let's go on some sales calls. That's real life. Let's drive in the country and talk about life. Let's keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. It's a long race. And here's a guy who's willing to train me to love Jesus in the mundane, because that's where we all live. And I couldn't see the value of it because I wasn't mature. Mature people follow the example and are eager for the example of a mature. Who are you? Who can you pursue? Who can you help? Who can you open up your life and your heart to that you could help? Maturity is following the mature. Number four, maturity is grieving the example of the ungodly. When I first looked at this, I wrote in my notes, maturity is avoiding the example of the ungodly. But this isn't avoidance language. This is grief language. Look what he says. Verse 18, so follow wise people. Verse 18, many, uh, for many of whom I've told you and now tell you even with tears, walk As enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame, with mindset on earthly things. So look for wise people, and then 
Here's what I'm going to tell you. He's not being self-righteous, judgmental, throwing rocks of judgment against all the secular culture and all the sinners. Here's what he's saying. This letter arrives with tear stains on it. He's weeping at this point of the letter. He's saying, I'm telling you, and I'm telling you with tears. He's got a tear-stained face as he's writing this point. It's not moral superiority. It's not better than the world. He's saying, it grieves me to tell you this, but there are many people out there that are enemies of the cross. It could be the Judaizers, which he described earlier. We don't know who he's talking about. But there's people that don't see the value of the cross. They're not pursuing Jesus. Their end is destruction. They're going to end up in destructive. Their lives are going to be destructive. This grieves me to tell you this. Their God is their belly. Does that mean they were gluttons? Well, maybe, but it probably means more than that. It probably means that they live their lives for sensual fulfillment. Whatever my senses tell me I want now and will bring me pleasure, whether that's a gallon of ice cream uh, or, or a, a, an illicit sexual activity or whatever it is, their God is their belly. They live according to their sensual desires, their glory is in their shame. What they're most excited about, what they brag about, what they're chasing is shameful. And it's going to end in destruction. Their minds, here's the big point, their minds are set on earthly things. They're living as if this is all there is. I want to tell you, he's implying, don't follow that. Listen, young people, be careful who you're following. Be careful. What is their destination? Are they on the race pursuing Jesus or not? Because if they are not, if they don't know Christ, their end is destruction. So maturity is, it's not only not imitating the example of the godly, there's plenty of people who self-righteously aren't imitating certain activities of the ungodly. They're protesting and railing against them and, and everything else. They're not grieving over them. They're not grieving. So it's a grieved avoidance. It's not a celebratory avoidance, like we're it and they're not. Really, really important to us, I think, in the the heart behind the culture wars. What's our heart in all this? There should be some tears. There There should be some tears and maybe just not firing off my latest thought on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. Maybe my keyboard should have some tears on it when I'm talking about other people and what they're doing. So maturity grieves the example of the ungodly. It follows the example of the mature, grieves the un- uh, thoughts of the ungodly. Here's the last one. Maturity is living for eternity. <laughs> it's, it's not short race. It's what he says. Our citizenship is in heaven, verse 20, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's the hope. That's the prize. That's what he's going after. The power which enables him to subject all things in himself. I'm waiting the return of Jesus, he says. I'm waiting to see Christ face to face. That's my prize. And so I'm thinking for eternity. I'm making decisions. My long-range plans aren't, what am I going to do in the winter? Or what am I going to do next summer? Or what's my five-year plan? My goals are set like, what am I going to be doing 10,000 years from now? Okay, 10,000 years from now, what will I be doing? I don't know exactly, but it's going to have something to do with Jesus big and glorious, I assure you, if you're a believer. So maybe I should make some decisions today that not only are what am I doing in five years or when the last kid gets out of the house or once I finally get married or when I retire, maybe I should be thinking about what about that eternal rest with I'm with Christ? Okay, but let's back that up. That maturity means I make decisions now that, that reflect that. 
So here's what he says. Maturity is not your rank. It's not how far you are. You could be a young person here today and be mature. You could be a high school student that applies these things and be more spiritually mature than people that are 40, 50, 60, 70 in the room. I don't think maturity, now life experience is valuable and plays in, but maturity is not just about what rank you are. Maturity is about realizing you need to grow. Maturity is about focusing upon Jesus above all else. Maturity is following the example of the mature. Maturity is grieving the example and avoiding the example with a broken heart of the ungodly. Maturity is living for eternity. And all of that with this key in view, verse 12, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Why do we do all of this? Why is this our goal? Why is he our goal? Because he has made us his own. Last comment and we're done. This fall, we're going to be focusing on the basics as a church. Be focusing on what's God really called us to? Who are we? Uh, who, 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 what does it mean to be a part of this church family? What does it mean to serve God together as a people? He says brothers several times in this passage. We're focusing on that. I begin to think about this passage Paul's talking about. Think this way if you're mature. I begin to think about what would a mature church look like? We don't talk a lot about spiritual maturity in individuals. I certainly don't think we talk a lot about a mature church. What would a mature church look like? Let's run through the passage. Mature churches realize they haven't arrived. Churches who think they've got it and they've arrived and they're superior are immature by definition. Mature churches realize we haven't arrived. We have not obtained it. But he has obtained us and so we're pressing in. Mature churches accurately assess their need for grace. Mature churches pursue Christ above all else. We don't exist for us, we exist for him. Mature churches don't seek to make a name for themselves, but to exalt Christ above all else. Mature churches don't rest on their laurels. Mature churches don't stagnate. It's okay to have a slideshow. It's okay to tell testimonies about what happened in the good old. That's fine. But mature churches don't live in the past. They're pressing on. Mature churches don't look back and live in the regrets of the scars and the bruises and the battles they've been through and and get stuck there. Mature churches don't also just glory in the old days. Mature churches remember their past, thank God for his grace, and pursue Jesus. Mature churches look to the examples of other churches, always learning and learning from one another. Mature churches have people in them where the, the, the typical person is looking to grow by the example of other mature people. Mature churches live for eternity. They're not rooted in the earthly. They're not attracting people with the earthly desires and the fulfillment of temporary pleasures. They are attracting people to see Jesus and to think for eternity. A long time. Mature churches sacrifice their time, talents, and treasures for the Savior from heaven because he is soon returning for us. Mature churches will always have new people, lost people, immature people. Mature people can act immature for sure. But mature churches are churches which have this mindset in view, who think this way. I'm praying that I could be mature. I'm praying that we could be mature. 
I've got a ways to go. We've got a ways to go. But pressing on, forgetting what lies behind, let's press on to Jesus together, together, because he has grabbed hold of us. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.